the Endurance Asia podcast. Yo, pick your red up because things ain't that bad. Maybe you should switch the target that you're aiming at. Believe perfection is a beast that they'll never catch. So never waste another day because life moves so fast. And a dream without pursuing, yo, they never last. Another shadow of regret I try to never cast. And always tell a truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Hello, welcome to episode 52 of the Endurance Asia podcast. I'm your host, Scott Pugh, and this week we've dug into the archives and pulled out a never-before-published interview with Andy Dubois. Uh, We had Andy on the podcast talking about his personal background, his experience as a running coach, and digging into his philosophy uh, as a a coach, and uh, recommend you, uh, you looking up that prior episode. But we also had a chat with him on a separate thread around his uh, advice around training for UTMB or 100 mile races in Singapore or Hong Kong or Asia and doing so with the limited resources as it comes to the limited amount of hills that you might have in Singapore and Andy gives a lot of insight of how you can structure a training plan for these types of races and we thought it would be a good timing to to publish this uh this is in fact it would have been better timing publishing it two months ago as people were training for these races but given that uh that utmb is this weekend we thought it'd be good timing to to get this content out there and uh and yeah we're, we're very excited about the uh about all the races happening this weekend uh both rick and i will be um will be coming on and running a podcast in the next uh, next week or so to kind of recap the events from the the effectively the ultra running world championships which are utmb uh, uh triple c occ tds which have all happened over the the past week out of out of chamonix and uh, and to discuss all of the performances for agents run agent runners in in the region uh, that that attended the the races uh, so with that um really i hope you all enjoy this brilliant episode and great insight from one of the top running coaches in Asia Pacific and the world, Mr. Andy Dubois. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Look, this is going to be a, a two-part session, so we're going to actually start off, um, this was originally supposed to be a live event with 100 people signed up, so I'm sure we'll have a lot of people in the live chat. Um, and uh, due to the coronavirus, we've uh, very um, made, made the right decision of just having it on a small but live online event. But um, we're very excited to have you here in, in Singapore, Andy. So we're going to have, a, we have two parts to the session. First part, we're going to be focused specifically on Singapore um, and to help educate trail runners, ultra runners here in Singapore on on how to um, how to train for ultras here. Um, and then the second part, we're going to record uh, an Endurance Asia podcast live in the Red Dot Running Store um, that we're going to be publishing later as well. But we're going to carry on the live stream for that as well. But um, but yeah, with that, Andy, um, you have. A, huge background in coaching um coaching ultra athletes across the region and specifically in here in singapore right you've actually you've got a big client base here um 
for those of us that, that run in Singapore, uh, it's not the most ideal location to uh, train for ultras. It, it could be worse, but uh, it could be a lot better as well. Could yes. it be worse? <laughs> I'm interested to find out what, what's worse. But, um, it could be but, worse. But with that, yeah, it'll be really good to sort of like open the floor to you now and really just um, to, to talk about how us trail runners in Singapore can... Um, can really plan our training and go about uh, improving our ability here in a, in the little red dot and the little <laughs> the flat red dot that is Singapore. So yeah, first of all, I think um, the thing that struck me about a lot of Singapore runners is, despite the fact you live on a basically a pancake flat island, is that that doesn't put you off entering UTMB, UTMR, Leverado, or whatever. You still think, well, that's all right. We've got one hill. We can still we can still do these mountain races. So I think it's great. It's a, it's a credit to the spirit of the ultra running community here that they challenge themselves in a way to still do these races but I want to talk tonight really about how to best train for that now as some of you will know I've coached Singapore athletes for quite a while now and I've got to know the trails through Strava and Gama Connect and that kind of stuff and yesterday I was lucky enough to be taken around and uh, Pav showed me around your famous hill Pukatima Um, so I understand what you guys have got to deal with so if you look at how to use the hills you have got and how to use them effectively to train for mountain races there's a few key things that you really got to think about so first of all Pukatima from my brief experience and from my extensive experience looking at it online has got one major hill and the rest is stairs so if you're training for a Hong Kong race then you can run here there and everywhere around Pukatima and you've got really effective training but if you're training for a race with no stairs then doing lots of laps and getting lots of vert on lots of stairs makes no sense at all um, what I typically see with a lot of Singapore runners when they start with me is they'll say I do a three or four hour long run on the weekends and I look at the data and they've covered you know 12 kilometers in three hours with 1500 vert which is a lot of vert but it's a lot of stairs and not much hill training and not much distance and often the speed is actually below the cutoff point so straight away you've got to think about what does your race entail? So if we take, say, Lavarado, because it's a common one for Singapore athletes, um, you're looking at around 450 metres of vert per 10k. So when you put together your long run, you've got to think, well, how can I get 450 metres of vert per 10k without stairs? Now, if you look at Bukatima, then correct me if I'm wrong, but the only hill without stairs that's of any length is the main drag up the middle. Is that pretty much correct? Pretty yeah. much, yeah. So... Look, you can do a fun run where you go up down here and around and take in some new trails and, you know, do a nice, fun trail run, but it's not going to be specific because you're going to get a lot of stairs, not much distance, and too much vert of anything. Because stairs isn't hills. I mean, the difference between stairs and hills is stairs regulate your stride length. You are fixed into how big a stride length you have. You can't change that. Whereas hills, you can take a longer stride as you want or a shorter stride as you want. So because stairs fix you into that, when you get to a hill that requires different stride length, you're not used to doing that. Plus stairs, you land flat, hill you land on an angle, so it loads the body differently. So you've got to try and minimise the amount of stairs in your training to be effective. So what that means to book a team are, is if you're trying to get 450 metres of vert in 10k, you've got to think, well, if I just go up and down the main track, I'm going to get more than 450 metres of vert. So how can I combine reps of the main track with some flatter running? So overall, it gives me 400 to 500 metres of vert per 10K. So along pipeline, for example, you could do a couple of laps up and down the main track, duck down a pipeline, do a bit of kilometres on that, back up to the main track again, and vary between the two. So overall, even though one's steeper and one's flat, combined, they give you roughly 450 metres of vert per 10K. 
So I think for long runs, that's that's the number one thing I, I see that people do wrong. And one of the first things I change is like, let's try and get that vert where it should be. Because people think there's no such thing as too much vert. But there is. Like, Leverado's got a lot of running to it. Um, even UTMB, like with 10,000 vert, it's not particularly technical. Uh, and you've got like from Grand Corferre down is 20k plus of downhill. And it's sweet downhill running. Like you can run five minute k's or quicker down that just cruising if you've trained for it. Now, if you've just trained going downstairs and not used to running downhills, your quads will be smashed very quickly. So you've got to get used to running hills, not stairs. Now, what that means is lots of reps. Now, you might say, oh, Bukatima, four hours of reps up the main drag of Bukatima. Look, you've got a choice. You can either enjoy your trail running and run with friends and go up and down stairs, get to UTMB, pay all the money, all the flights, take the time off work and DNF 120k, or you can do lots of reps of the, of the main drag. Now, when I trained for UTMB, I was living in London, which you think Singapore was flat. The hill I had in London was a 90-second trail hill or a three-minute road hill. That was it. And it wasn't as steep as Bukatima. This is my long runs. It was 90-second reps for four hours, 100, 110 plus reps. That was the only hill I had. For, for the road hills, it was three minutes. and It wasn't quite as steep, but I just did reps and reps of that. But that was the only way to get the vert in. So I could have run around Hampstead Heath and done nice, lovely little loops and enjoyed the run and got half the amount of vert or go up and down the hill. So it's a case of do you want to perform well on the race or do you just want to enjoy your running? Now, if you just want to enjoy your running, I recommend don't enter races like UTMB or UTMR or whatever. Unless you're prepared to put in the training, you're just sabotaging yourself. Um, so I think that's the first thing is get your long run specific to the terrain of the race. Um, so that's a long run. Second thing is during the week, like Singapore's flat, yes, but you have got some hills. Like I know there's, um, was it Mount Canning? Mount, no, Canning and Faber. Mount Faber and Fort Canning. And Fort Canning, yeah. 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 Um, look, they're only two, three minutes, something like that, but they're a hill. So you've just got to make the most of that. Like my, my run hill repeats in London were three minutes. And I know depending on your speed, you've got at least two or three minutes in both of those locations that you can just run up and down. So I think during your weekday runs, ideally you'd get at least one hill repeat session, which would be running up hard, running back down easy, and over time progressing that to running up hard and running back down hard as well. Um, so I think that's the other thing that a lot of people miss out on is they, they work on running up hard, but forget that running down hard. Um, and I think unless you condition your legs to run down hard in those big races like UTMB and stuff like that, your quads will be smashed by halfway and you're not running very fast anymore. Now, if you're kind of nudging cutoffs, the way to get ahead of that is by running faster downhill. But if you're starting to walk downhills, then you're losing time hand over fist and you're not going to make the cutoffs. So it's important that your hill repeats start with working up hard running and then running back down easy. But over time, building up that, going faster and faster on the downhills to condition the legs. Now, the other thing I think, with downhills, and I see it a lot of time in, in long runs as well, is the technique of running downhill. And long runs, too many of us think that going downhill is just a recovery. We're just going to jog down there, chat to our mates, turn around, and, and work harder going back up. Now, if you apply that logic to, say, a marathon training, like when you're training for a long run for a marathon, how many people out there would do, you know, run five kilometers, then as a warm-up, then do a kilometer faster, kilometer slow, kilometer faster, kilometer slow? You just don't do that. Like, that doesn't make any sense. You do the same pace for the whole run, or you might even speed it up towards the end. So why, when we do trail runners, do we push harder on the ups and easier on the downs? 
Like, it just makes no sense at all. What we should be doing is keeping it steady on the ups and on the downs, not pushing faster, but not going slower either. Training your legs to have that higher cadence and training the effort level to be not the same as going up because it's always going to feel harder going up, but it's not a recovery either. It should be back down and running the downhills as though it's part of the run, not that it's part of the recovery. Um, how, how would you monitor that then? Would you say, would it be on a heart rate base or by feel? I think it's quite difficult by feel because it obviously feels harder going up hills than it does going downhill. So would you actually recommend to your uh, coached athletes to actually monitor their heart rate to make sure they're pushing at the same yeah. intensity down as they are? I don't use up? heart rate, I use power. Um, yeah. Just because heart rate, there's a big delay in it and it's affected by a lot of things, dehydration, the weather, caffeine, lack of sleep, fatigue, etc., etc. So for those that use heart rate, you can use it, but, but there are problems with using it like wrist heart rate monitors are notoriously inaccurate um particularly going up or going down because your arm swing differs and as soon as your arm swing differs that happens and then your heart rate jumps from 140 to 170 and you've got no idea what's going on but for a lot of people the thing to focus on is not so much the effort for a lot of people pick the cadence up um because most of the runners or the inexperienced mountain runners i see their cadence is too slow on the downs um now i'm not saying that you know 90 is the best cadence because it isn't but for downhill running, unless you've got the ability to increase your cadence, you're always going to be limited on steep hills or technical hills. You've only got to watch someone like Killian Jornet run downhill and watch his leg speed turn over. And it is super fast, like 100, 110 plus. Um, and the, the thing with that is it gives you much better control because the more time you spend in the air through a longer stride, the more forward momentum you get. So when you land, it's much harder to change direction, to dodge rock or whatever, or slow down. Whereas you're taking short little fast steps, you can easily dodge your way down whatever trail's there. Now, Pukatima's not technical at all, it's a road. But unless you practice high cadence going down Pukatima, you can have no hope in running down the technical last descent of Lavaredo, for example, on tired legs. If you can't run 90 plus cadence going down Pukatima, forget running fast on that last descent of Lavaredo. So I think above anything on your downhills, practice high cadence, practice landing lightly, practice landing more midfoot to forefoot now that's not to say don't don't take this out of context context of me saying that hill striking is bad and and forefoot running is better that's a different argument i'm talking about running downhill and typically if you're hill striking downhill you are overstriding and your cadence is lower you're getting more deceleration more loading forces on the quads you smash your quads up quicker and you suffer badly at the end of the race so on downhills really focus on high cadence light landings and if you do that the effort level will be higher anyway um, i think we get too lazy on long runs particularly towards the end and it's like oh, i just drop back down i think towards the end of long run is the perfect time to practice it because that's when you're most tired so if you can get your legs to give you that higher cadence when you're tired come race day you've got more chance of that translating to you on race day yeah. And if you're if you are training for say for Hong Kong and doing steps, then like if you're, um, how does that affect your cadence if you're going if you're going by steps? I mean, would you just be focusing on doing two steps at a time or doing one step a, a lot quicker? What what would you? Um, yeah, good question again. So cadence works on downhill on downstairs as well, um, and once again, it's a practice thing. It's um, anybody's ever done stair repeat, like you push up really hard to your legs like lactated out and then try and run back down your legs are like oh they're all dodgy as because there's so much lactate and it affects the neuromuscular pathway to your legs and you can't function properly with training you can get over that though so 
when you watch someone descend stairs quickly, once again, you see how fast their cadence is. Um, that comes with practice. And too often downstairs, we just go boom, 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 plod downstairs, turn around, go hard back up. Now, you think about it in a race, going up the stairs is more just about hiking, finding that consistent, steady pace that you can maintain for the whole climb. Downstairs is where you can make up a lot of time, if you've trained for it. But if you've just gone hard upstairs and training and just kind of jog back down again, you haven't conditioned the legs for the cadence required. In terms of um, one step or two, it really depends on your leg length and the step height. Um, two stairs is obviously tougher and more loading, landing forces, because it's higher drop. Uh, and in some places that's good, some places not so good. In a, in a King of the Hills 25k race, yep, two stairs at a time, smash your quads, get to the bottom, great. In a 168 kilometer race in Hong Kong with lots of stairs or Hong Kong four trails, no, no, no. <laughs> One step, gently, gently, you know, down you go. But I think the thing with stairs is, is, is what I see is people people really thud downstairs. It's a lot of impact. And whether it's downhill or downstairs, lighter the better. You really got to train yourself to run downhill lightly. Because if you're running lightly, you're minimizing ground contact um, and landing forces. So less load in your quads, more forwards translation of momentum, saving energy, etc. So again, it's about practicing descending well. Now, descending stairs or hills is much more load on the legs. So it's more likely to injure yourself. So don't go from this seminar and go out and smash your legs on your next Sunday morning run. You've got to build up to that. So typically for me and my clients, we'll, you know, we'll translate from hard up, very easy down over a period of three months to finishing up with steady up, fast back down. But that's a you know, 12-week to 16-week you know, progression we've used to get there. And the good thing is you don't need to do a lot of super fast downhills to get the conditioning effect. Um, if you're really smashing downhills, you could do that once every three weeks for three sessions, and you've got a massive conditioning effect from that. Um, so it's not something you have to do a lot of, but you need to practice the cadence regularly so you can do that super fast downhill. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to cope with it. Um, Abby's asked here, um, could you possibly replace hill climbing with high-intensity workouts? Such as? So I guess he's talking about fartlek or for or to do if you've got your say you you can only fit your run in as a run to work okay. so can right. you just do right. like um five um kilometer at uh, yeah at, yeah, or, yeah. So, okay. or like cool. five minutes at, at so that was the next thing i was going to talk about um aside from stairs or stairs and hills in your midweek run as a high, high intensity session and your long run Big believer in speed training should be standard for whether you're training for UTMR, UTMB, Lavaredo, Hong Kong 100, whatever. It doesn't matter. You should be doing some form of speed training. Um, now, what that might look like, it might start off with 400 meter reps and progress to one mile reps. All depends on your background, uh, what kind of conditioning you've had, how much you've done before. But in general, yes, if, if you've got no hills, like say, for example, you can't get to any hills during the week then speed training is your next best option because it will load the legs more, it'll teach you about higher cadence, it'll condition the legs more. So definitely do, even if you've got, I mean, I've got guys who live in, like I've got a client who lives in Zug in Switzerland. He's got a ton of mountains by his back door. He still does a once a week track session because right. speed training is important. And unless you do that, you're missing one part of the pie um, that could benefit your running. So definitely speed training. As I said, how that looks really depends on the time of year. I typically start clients, you know, say five, six months out from their main race with short reps, 400 meter, 600 meter, 800 meter. 
because a lot of people that come into ultra running have come into the sport without a real background in track or 5Ks or 10Ks. So they've never really run fast. Um, so there's a lot of potential for improvement by doing the short stuff, which will increase their speed for the longer stuff. So we'll typically start at 400s, 800s, and then build to 1600s. They might go to tempo work of, I don't know, 5 by 8 minute tempo, 3 by 15 minutes, 3 by 20 minutes towards the end. So you start off short and get longer and longer, but yet slightly slower as you go. But because the volume increases, the actual load is heavier or more. Um, and I think if you can nail a speed session, a hill repeat session, and a long run as the foundation of your training, then you've got 70 to 80% of your training done, really. Yeah. And the um, the long run, do you recommend that that mimics the exact level of elevation? You mentioned sort of like 400 metres per 10K, or do you need to, to mimic the exact elevation um, of the race? So if it's a 50K and there's a 2,500, you need to do 500 metres per uh, per 10K. Is that kind of in, uh, yeah, roughly... In what, general, yes. So it needs to, yeah, further it, the long run. Yeah, but then it kind of depends on your strengths or weaknesses. Like... Um, Hong, Singapore runners are a little bit better because you have to run flat but I know some Hong Kong runners they'll do too much vert not enough flat so races where there's flat sections they just haven't done any flat running in, in the long run so they suffer and also I think with some races you know you see the profile kind of goes like this and other races have a massive climb and a massive descent then a flat section so you've got to think what's the race got for me is it a series of short undulating climbs or is it one big climb or two big climbs and a big flat section in between and if it is, then you know, doing some running along pipeline, for example, then going back to Bukatima is a really good way to do it. If it's just one big climb, well, you haven't got a big climb, so all you can do is go up and down Bukatima. Um, so you've got to think about what the race demands of you and then think about how you can mimic that in training. Other aspects to think about, though, if, you're, if you come from a, from a mountain background and never done much flat running, then you're probably better off you know, three or four months from the race doing more flat running to condition your legs for running. If you come from a road marathon background and you're going into UTMB, then you're probably better off doing lots of mountain running because you've got you, know, you can run, you can do 20k's non-stop, no problems at all. But you're not used to going up and down all the time. So, so you're saying actually focus on your weaknesses. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that's that's key. I mean, I know when I did UTMB, I came from a background of um, Ironman triathlon, so fast marathoner, plenty of flat running, but no mountains. Yeah. So when I trained for UTMB. The only flat run I did for the week was my speed session. The rest was all hills, as much as London can offer me, but it was all just up and down hills because that was my weakness. Yeah. Whereas someone who, who comes from a mountain background, they should probably do the opposite, work on more speed. And often what happens with, with runners who do a lot of mountain races is they gradually lose their speed because they haven't done enough flat running or speed sessions. So sometimes I'll take them away from the mountains for you know two or three months to get some speed back in the legs and then get them back on that with that increased level of speed to take them to the next level. I mean, you've got to remember, someone like Killian John A is doing 3 by 5 k tempo runs at 15 minutes per 5K. Like, he's running 3-minute Ks, and he's one of the best mountain runners, or is the best mountain runner in the world. So he's got natural speed, and all those runners, all those runners, like you take the top 10 at UTMB, and they can knock out sub 17-minute, 5-minute Ks, no problems at all. I mean, the first 5Ks, they take off at sub 4-minute Ks. So they're quick runners, quick flat speed runners. And if you're not doing any flat training, you're just limiting your progression in the mountains. So you've got to do some flat training as well. Yeah. What are your thoughts around, um, we find a lot of people in Singapore, they need to cram in the vert. They can't always get up to book a teamer on the weekends. They'll spend their lunchtime going up and down stairwells, either in their office building or the local HDB. Um, 
how do you uh, I suppose it, it's back to what you said about look it depends the type of terrain you're running on but how do you feel about running up and down stairwells as a form of training to get invert yeah look I did that for UTMB I did one session a week on stairs I was going to live in London I'd have to make do what I could um, I think you have to think about what your options are and like there's always the best case scenario which is obviously getting to hills but Booker Timo is you know a way away for a lot of people during the week and you can't get there so then you think okay what can I do can I get to the short hills at Fort Canning at Mount Faber no okay what's the next best option i can either do treadmill hiking up the problem with treadmill hiking look it's great uh, but there's no downhill um so i think you've got to balance that and stairs you've got both up and down um but obviously it's a bit less relevant to running downhill so it's kind of like well they both have the pros and cons i i mix it up when i was doing utmb i did about six weeks of stair sessions and did about three or four two-hour hiking on treadmill just max incline two hours hard non-stop two hours just to try and tick both boxes so i was used to hiking for non-stop long periods of time because most of like utmb you're hiking for one one and a half two hours or more Um, up one climb up one climb yeah so unless you're used to long hiking then once again you're missing a little bit of training you could, could have ticked off just by going on the treadmill now it's boring as hell for sure but, I mean, I don't listen to music at all, except when I'm doing two-hour treadmill sessions. Yeah. <laughs> then I'll put the music in and just grind it out. Because come race day, you're going to be thankful that you did that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've, um, yeah, we, in fact, a quick shout-out to Jerry as well, who like who did an Everesting going up, down, and a HDB stairwell, which is just <laughs> ridiculous. Like, 30 hours in a stairwell is mental. 30 hours in a stairwell is mental. <laughs> <laughs> but that's Jerry. That's Jerry. But that's Jerry. Um, uh Excellent. I mean, um, just in terms of, uh, there's a few more questions around um, around strength training and stuff. But I think what would be, um, I mean, is there anything else that you'd like to cover specifically around Singapore for Singapore runners? And then we can get into sort of like more of a general chat for the podcast okay. uh, around, yeah. Um, I think Singapore runners, obviously the heat and humidity plays a factor. Um, I mean, it's always hot yeah. and humid here, um, but some days are better than others. And I think, you know, with all, all my clients training in Hong Kong or Singapore or anywhere that's humid, you've got to realize some days are worse or better than others and you've got to temper your expectations according to that. So if you're doing a hill session or a track session or a speed session or whatever and it's one of those days where it's rain and the sun's come out and it's baking hot and baking humid, then you've, you've got to expect to run slower. That's just the way it goes. And if, if you try and push the same speeds as you were doing on a slightly cooler day, you're just going to blow up. So I think you've got to understand that the heat and humidity, even though it's always hot and humid, there are good days and bad days. And you've got to accept that on bad days, you've got to tone it down a little bit. Um, so that's one thing. How does that work when you mentioned that you prefer power as a, um, as a measurement for, um, for the level of intensity? Obviously, that doesn't account for no. the heat or humidity. So yeah. how do you... Uh, so we've got... Um, there's various equations or spreadsheets you can use to just type in a, a temperature and a humidity. Virtually what you do, there's a, there's a calculator where you type in what you're used to training in. So say you're used to training in 28 degrees and 60% humidity, but today is 32% and 80, 80, 32 degrees and 80% humidity, bam, 10 watts lower. So yeah, it's, look, it's not a precise thing, nothing is, because everyone is better or worse acclimatized to the heat and humidity. So it's always gonna be some individual fluctuation. Some people don't drop as much in humidity as others, but, you could ask the same thing about heart rate, you could ask the same thing about pace. It's, they're all affected by humidity to a certain degree and no one can really say, okay, if you're 165 at this temperature, you should be 170 at this temperature because it depends on how well acclimatized you are. Um, 
in fact, when I asked you, I said, uh, you know, Singapore is not the ideal place for training for, for ultra marathons. And you said there's worse places. But that humidity side, do you think that's actually the, the heat and humidity is a good thing to be able to train Look, for endurance? There are some benefits to heat and humidity. Um, if you go from training in heat, hot and humid climates to cold and dry climates, there's a similar effect to training altitude. You, you can increase blood plasma. Um, so there is an advantage of doing that. The problem is if you have if you go from a hot, humid place and spend two or three weeks before the race at UTMB, then you lose most of that benefit because it only lasts for two or three so you weeks. you adapt to it so yeah, quickly. Yeah, yeah, so it only lasts a couple of weeks. But if you're going straight from here to a cold climate race, you know, three days later, then you, you got, you're at an advantage. Um, so it's not all bad. It's yeah. not all bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so, and, and what would be a... Yeah, you mentioned there were like... Yeah, worse worse. So I was, I was chatting with my client today. She's uh, She works in Kuwait. There you go. So, and yeah. summer it's fifty degrees, and you can't wear shorts. Yeah, uh, there's obviously no hills and sandstorms and stuff like that. Or you could so. be in somewhere like Jakarta or something. Yeah, I've been in Jakarta. Like yeah, the, the, the yeah. I had a client in Buenos Aires who trained on the flyovers. He did TDS, um, so his only hill was the flyovers. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so there is worse, you know. Yeah. Fair enough, um, yeah. um, <laughs> and I suppose last one specifically for Singapore. I mean, what would you would you say that um, what type of people in Singapore would need a running coach? Who would? Um, Look, yeah, yeah who with, with running coach, up? I think I think some people definitely respond a lot really well with running coaches. Some people don't. If you're the type of person that doesn't like taking orders, if you're the type of person who's very self directed uh, and is not willing to take on much feedback, definitely do not get a running coach because um, you'll butt heads the whole time. If you want help, if you're a bit lost in your training or you want accountability, then obviously a running coach can provide that. Um, and I think virtually it doesn't matter whether you're back of the pack or at a league. I mean, I coach people that are just making the cutoffs um, to people who are winning races, um, and they all benefit from having a, a good coach. So I think as long as you're willing to try new things um, – and be flexible with your training. Like a good coach will work with you. Like one of the first things I ask people is, what's your typical training routine like? When do you train? How often do you train for? Where do you go to train? What hills can you access? Because there's no point a running coach is spitting out a program and you saying, so, well, I can't make hills that day. I, I want to do it that day. And I can't do, like, that's pointless. So I think a good coach will ask you lots of questions, get to know what you're currently doing, what you like doing, what your training environment is, and work with you to do that. Um, so unless your coach does that, it's not worth, you might as well train yourself. Uh, but any good coach should be asking those questions anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think there's any, if there's any like specific race for someone they're working towards, or is there any, anything that would, that you think should actually drive their decision to say, hey, yeah, I, need, good question. I need help and support in this? I think if you're forking out a lot of money to A, enter a race, B, fly to the race, C, pay for the accommodation, take the time off work, you know, that could be two or $3,000 or more. It's like, and you don't really know what you're doing training-wise, then the investment in a coach is small compared to the payoff you'll get by finishing that race. There's nothing worse than, you know, following some recommendations of your mates who may or may not have done the race before, may or may not know what they're talking about, getting to the race and DNFing halfway through, making some simple, simple mistakes that could have easily been corrected with a half-decent running coach. So if you're investing yourself, your time, your time's the other thing, ignoring money, like... If you're training 8, 10, 12 hours a week for six months and you're putting all that time in and you're making basic mistakes on the race, it's like really for, for not that much money per month, you could have smashed it. Yeah. So I think, yeah, if you've got a big race coming up and you don't really know what you're doing, it's worthwhile. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, and uh, so actually what we're going to do now then is we'll, um, we're going to flip into a... Um, sorry, two more questions. Two more questions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay, we've got a question from Robin here. Um, so how are you able to uh, follow up injury-free progress for your, for your runners? Would you also advise to, to follow up with a physio uh, um, at the same time? Okay, so two-part answer to that. First of all, in terms of progressing training and making sure injury-free, the body's remarkable in its ability to adapt provided you give it the right stimulus, not too much stimulus and enough stimulus so you get that adaption occurring. So the key for me as a coach is understanding what the client has done before, what the athlete's done before when they're training and how successful that was. So they might come to me and say, Andy, look, I've had a history of ITB problems, a stress fracture in my foot and uh, you know, a torn hamstring or whatever. Okay, what training were you doing? How much mileage were you doing, etc., etc. Okay, I've got a good idea what didn't work so let's scale that back a bit and progress a lot slower. Now, people, like we're in the age today where we want everything now. So, you know, we want to train for a race in three months' time, starting from 30k a week and it's a 100-mile race. Like, we're so impatient. Endurance is built in years, not in months or weeks. So when I talk about, you know, people, you know, the 10% rule, the commonly um, talk about rule in terms of progressing your long run or your weekly volume, a 10%... Look, there's no scientific evidence that the 10% has got any credibility whatsoever. It was one coach you know, made it up and it's since been applied. Can and it you works some, for those so out, ten, yeah, the, what the 10% rule So 10% rule, rule means you don't increase your kilometres or volume by more than 10% per yeah. week. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you get injured. Now, some people can increase by 5% and be injured all the time. Some people can increase by 15% and never be injured. Um, it just depends. But if you look at it from the long point of view, like the long game, if you're running 50Ks a week and you increase your total weekly kilometers by two kilometers every second week, so you do 50, 50, 52, 52, you think, oh, I'm never going to get anywhere doing that. Well, that's 26 kilometers in a year. So you've gone from 50 to 76. Another year of that, you're now at 102 kilometers. And I bet you you're injury free because you've taken two years to go from 50 to 100. But what we see is people go from 50 to 70 to 80 to 90 in the space of three months and all these niggles come in. So one key to staying injury-free is being patient, listen to your coach, run the easy runs easy so you can run the harder runs harder and recover because that's the other common mistake we see. Too many hard runs and not enough recovery runs. Um, So that helps take care of the load-based thing. As far as the physio goes, a good physio is worth their weight in gold. However, there's good physios, like coaches, like any industry, there's good ones and there's not so good ones. So if you're seeing a physio, make sure you see a a good running-specific physio, and the best way to to find one of them, ask around. Ask other athletes who they see, what they were like, and you get a good feel for what kind of physios are worth seeing. Because, I mean, I've got a a strong background in rehab, Uh, not physio-based, but background in rehab, so I kind of have a good understanding of rehab. And often a client will go see a physio and they come back and they say, blah, 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 that's just so outdated, that method, that treatment, that kind of solution. You know, we've stopped doing that 15 years ago. So that's not disparaging physios in general. There's some great physios out there. But make sure you go to one who's running specific. Um, but I think, look, ideally you don't need to see a physio. Ideally, if you're patient with your training, you progress slowly, you make sure your easy runs are easy, then you shouldn't need to see a physio in the first place. 
Yeah, that's really sound advice. And um, uh, Trung is asking uh, how to train for technical terrain, um, such as a man by UTMB and UTMB, without having the technical terrain here in, uh, in Singapore? So what we can do is develop the skills that you would require on that technical terrain. So in descending technical terrain, you need high cadence. So if you've got the high cadence, then you can start to apply it to the technical terrain. Obviously, there's a, a jump in the neuromuscular system between the high cadence and applying it on t um, technical trail. But unless you can do the high cadence to start with, you're going to have no hope of applying it to the technical trail. So I think that's the first thing is get the cadence up. And so you, you're really good on short, fast strides going downhill. As far as a man goes, look, that's a super technical course. It's just out of this world technical. A lot of stairs. Um, in Singapore, that's really all you can do. Stairs and practice really high cadence descents because um, it's so far removed from anything in Singapore and anything in, in most races. It's yeah. just a super technical course. Yeah. Uh, we've got a question here from, uh, from Robin Sip saying, um, uh, oh, sorry, um, sorry, from, um, from Bernard Go asking, um, if you're training for a 100 kilometer race with 4,000 meter elevation, what would be the ideal training in terms of the max elevation and max distance per week? So 100K race that you're working towards, yeah. what should be your average weekly, that, that I suppose, at the, at the peak level? And that, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's how long is a piece of string kind of question, but to get some kind of framework. You've got to know what their baseline yeah, is first going yeah, into yeah. it. But, but as, as a general rule of thumb, if you're training for a 100-kilometer race, if you can get your weekly volume to 70 to 90 per week, because um, that's where that's a sweet spot for a lot of people in terms of if you're working, got kids, family, busy job, whatever, doing much more than 90 or 100K a week is very challenging. Some people can do it for sure, but... 70 to 90 gives you a good base of volume to do 100k. Your long run, you know, ideally 35 to 45 as your max long run. There's no real need to do 50 plus k long runs. Like the extra advantage of doing 60 kilometer long run compared to doing a 40 kilometer run is like it's this much. It's really not that much at all. The extra risk of injury is like this much. So you've got to balance up. Well, how much extra benefit am I getting versus how much injury risk am I getting? It's probably not worth doing. Probably, you know, 95% of my clients won't do a run of longer than 50K for a 100K race. Okay. Um, As the distance goes, distance goes further, people go up to the miler distance though. Yeah, then, then it does get a little bit longer. Like most of my miler clients will do one, maybe two, six to eight hour runs. And I use the word run reluctantly in that there'll be a lot of hiking in that. Um, because there's a lot of hiking in a miler. Like, you know, if if you look at the amount of time you spend hiking, and I'm talking a typical mountain miler of, you know, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 dirt or more. Yeah. If you look at the amount of time you're running versus hiking in a 40-hour miler, you're probably hiking 25 hours of that. Um, I'm talking mid-pack to, to backpack. The elite's probably hiking 10 hours and running 12 hours, you know, something like that. Um, so for, for a miler, your long runs, or long run or two, Six to eight hours is, is your longest run. Four hours is your bread and butter. For most of my clients, four hours is a sweet spot between I can maintain that every week, um, but any more, and I'll probably start to break down. So four hours is kind of a good mark of, as where, that's where I start. Some people will be a little less, some people will be a bit more, depending on, on what they're doing. But yeah, it's a good ballpark figure. Okay, great. Um, we got a question here from Doug Irvin, who, like yourself, was a triathlete, um, or uh, he is a triathlete, and that he's actually moving towards ultra running and trail races. Um, 
He's asking, I think his next race is UTA 100, and he's asking whether he should still maintain doing his cross training, including cycling and, uh, and swimming, uh, if, he can fit, if he can fit them in, if it's worthwhile. Yeah, so that's a good question on cross training in that if, you can, if, if you've got the time, then you've got to ask yourself if the pure focus is UTA 100 or you know, whatever the race is, if you've got the time, what's your best use of training? So would it be better to ditch a bike or a swim and do an extra run or a strength session? Probably. Obviously, that gets to a point where doing more running is going to be a high risk of injury. So you've got to think about, okay, well, I'm doing, I don't know, I don't know what he's doing, but maybe 60K a week, um, but I'm doing three bikes and two swims. Well, if the, the race ultra is the most important thing, maybe I can drop one of those bikes and one of those swims and bump up from 60K to 80K over time. Um, once you get to that sweet spot of running where you, you know yourself that much more than that, you start to break down, then if you have the time still, then biking particularly would be a good cross-training um, activity to do but i prioritize strength over bike or swim before so i do strength do running first then strength and then if you still got time bike interesting and swim would be recovery if you've really got the time yeah yeah i was going to say what about if um if you've got an athlete that is uh, slightly injured or they've got a, a niggle um and can't fit the running mileage in that week can you actually say, look, you can fit in a, a, a ride in place of yep, some of your... Yeah, uh, definitely. So when a client's injured, the first thing we've got to establish is what limitations does that put on their running? Because a lot of time you've got a niggle that you could run, but you're trying to like ease it off a bit to let it recover. So can you still hike? Can you do speed work but no slow runs? Can you do no long runs but can do some shorter runs? Just think about what you can do, first of all, running-wise. Then once you've sorted out what's sensible to do running-wise, then think, okay, what's the next best thing I can do? So strength, first of all, hiking second, bike could be after that. Uh, and then if you can't do any of that, then you start thinking, well, water, aqua jogging or swimming, maybe uh, cross trainer in the gym, a versa climber. So virtually you start at running and you work your way away from running to get to something that you can do like swimming would be at this end running's at this end and y your injury dictates where along that spectrum you should fit um so you're doing something because something is almost always better than nothing there's there's not that many injuries that are best off doing absolutely nothing um maybe if you've got a, a broken bone in your foot or something it might really limit what you can do but most injuries doing something will speed up the injury quicker than doing nothing yeah, very good. And um, just the last one from the stream. Now we've got um, uh, we've got PSM online. What an absolute hey, PSM. <laughs> what an absolute legend from Singapore here. Um, what are some tips around managing sleep, um, especially on long overnight or multi-day races? This is one that's close to my heart <laughs> as well. Uh, it's common to sleepwalk or hallucinate on these events. In fact, we should probably be asking Jerry. She should. Um, she's got plenty of experience on that. She's got plenty of experience on this one. Um, should we nap? Um, or what are the alternatives for caffeine as it can upset your stomach? Sleep's something that's, um, in those long races, is just part of the parcel of the race. You've, you've got to manage it somehow. Um, unfortunately, you can't really train. You can't train sleep adaptation. You, you don't get any better at it. I've got two young kids, and they're two and five, and I'm so tired, it's ridiculous, and it doesn't get any easier. Any parent will tell you the same thing. It just doesn't get easier. Um, but what, it, what you do learn is how you function when you're sleep deprived. You learn how your brain doesn't work um, and you learn how your emotions feel. And once you know how you react, you can put a plan in place um, in races. So you might, you know, instead of having to think, because you, when you're sleep deprived, your decision-making ability is greatly reduced. 
So the first thing to do is think about all the decisions you need to make during a race, make them before the race, do a kind of flow chart. If this happens, this is what I do. If this happens, this is what I do. Write it all down. So when you get to your checkpoint and you go, oh, what should I do? It's like, okay, no decision making needed. All you gotta do is follow the flow chart. So take decision making out of the equation in races is the first step. In terms of sleep and caffeine, um, the research shows that caffeine, you don't need to go off caffeine to get a performance enhancing effect. However, we've got to differentiate between performance enhancing and sleep deprivation and staying awake. Because most of the research is about does it improve performance, not does it keep me awake overnight going for a 48-hour race. So improving a 10K or a marathon performance is vastly different to keeping me awake on the second night out in the trail between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. in the morning. So if from my knowledge, the best thing to do is abstain from caffeine for seven to 10 days before a big race, because then you get a bigger hit. Because what the research shows is that if you normally have two cups of coffee per day and you go into your race, all you need to do to get a performance enhancing effect is have three cups. All right? But when you're doing a 24, 36, 48 hour race, you can't just keep feeding coffee after coffee after coffee because you, know, you get jittery, it upsets your stomach, and, you, know, you, want, you want the best bang for your buck. So to do that, cut out caffeine seven to ten days beforehand, and anybody who's done that will know that when they go back on it, that first hit of coffee is like, oh, God, that feels better. Because um, you react much better. So that's the first thing. The second thing is your use of caffeine. You, you've got to experiment with what goes down well. Now, whether that's no-dose tabs. Do you have no-dose here? So it's caffeine tabs. Revis. Revis is different, though. Revis have got only 40 milligrams of caffeine. Now there's 100. Now there's 100? Okay, cool. So... Because Nodos are little tablets that contain 200 milligrams of caffeine. Revis, you're aware of 100 milligrams. So practice with them in training. So get to know how they affect you, how they affect your stomach. Because the last thing you want is to be wide awake but throwing your guts up. Because you're not going anywhere if that's happening. So practice with caffeine in training and find out whether it's Revis, whether it's actual, you know, you can get tea or coffee at checkpoints, whether you want to use more natural things like guarana or stuff like that. I'm sure there's other tablets and powders and concoctions out there of all natural caffeine things. Try them out in training. There's nothing to say one's better than the other. Try it out in training. Then you can, so that most of that will get you through one night. One night most people can do with no sleep. Um, the second night's where things start to get fairly hazy. So second night, not many people can go through a second night with no sleep. You might be able to if you're finishing at three in the morning, but if you're going through right till ten in the morning the next day you're probably going to need a nap. The research shows that what you should do is have a nap of around 15, 20 minutes or 90 minutes. Now, the reason for that is your sleep cycle is about 90 minutes. So you go into a deep sleep and back out. 90 minutes, you're kind of close to being awake as opposed to waking yourself up 60 minutes when you're right at the bottom and you wake up and you're like, oh, yeah. 90 minutes, you're still going to be tired, but you're going to be more alert. Um, Where 20 minutes is not long enough to get you into a deep sleep, but it's long enough to kind of reset the brain a bit to get you back out there again. If you do have a 20 minute nap, the best thing to do is have caffeine just before your nap. Because caffeine takes 15 to 20 minutes to kick in. So when you set the alarm, when you're waking up 15 minutes later, that's when you have the most effect. All right? That's a good so idea, yeah. that's for two nights. You should be able to get through the second night with a few 20 minute naps or worst case, one 90 minute nap. Once you start going longer, like things like tour de jaunts, then you've you really got to manage sleep well. You, I mean, the guys that are doing four or five days in Tour de Jean are sleeping in total about six hours. It's about an hour and a half a night. How you manage that, you know, is a lot of them will go through the first night, no sleep, and the second night, they'll grab an hour and a half and they'll just play it by ear as they go. But if you let yourself go too far, then you're an incoherent 
bubbling mess um, and you can't function, you can't run properly, you're swaying on this trail and DNF is the next thing that's going to happen. I, I had a client who fell asleep on the trail in Tour de Jean's at 290k DNF'd or disqualified because of that. Because um, you slept too long? Because you, know, you can't sleep long. on the trail. Right, okay. So she was caught by a marshal and... And you can only, so you can only do it at checkpoints? Checkpoints, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and she made a decision to try and push through from the last checkpoint to the next checkpoint. And because the last checkpoint was going to fall, she, oh, I'll just get to the next checkpoint. Yeah. So you've really got to know yourself and not be a hero and kind of go, you know what? Although I don't want to wait here for two hours to get asleep, I'm not sure I can get to the next checkpoint. And then you've got to start thinking about, well, how close to the cutoff am I? Like if the cutoff's there, then you've got nothing to lose. You may as well get out there. And if you collapse and fall asleep on the trail and DNF, well, you're going to DNF anyway because the cutoff was right behind you. But if you've got eight hours, ten hours of the cutoff, just take a sleep. Just forget the cutoff. You know, you've got enough leeway. Just take the sleep, move on from there. Yeah. So it's really about managing that sleep. There's no, there's no tricks really. Very good. Um, okay, we're going to switch. Um, we're going to switch lanes slightly now, and um, and we're just going to um, go into um, a, rec- a recording for the Endurance Asia podcast for this week. So let me just uh, get like the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad.